This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Did you know, have you, are you familiar with the phrase, pleased as punch? Yes, I have been pleased as punch ever. Do you know the provenance of that phrase? Not at all. Did you think that it was like punch, like fruit punch? Is it punch? And then you just never really thought about it. Is it punch like punch and Judy? It is punch like punch and Judy. Oh, snap. So I don't know what that guy has to be pleased about, but the novel Middlemarch by George Eliot that I read for this week's episode of this podcast Craig's going to tell you about in a second uses that phrase a few times and they kept capitalizing punch. And I'm like, wait, is punch a guy? <laughs> <It's> punch- <laughs> so I figured it out. Welcome punch to Punch and Judy is from the 16th century. It's from the Commedia yep. dell'arte and it's about angry ugly puppets yeah the they just hit each other uh performed by a, a professor or punch man <laughs> it's a single puppeteer in a booth welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew punch man is my favorite nes game <laughs> it's the end uh, i think there's an anime called like one punch man I think the whole is that. Can you Google that real quick? Mm-hmm. I, one Punch Man. Is it that he? I think he just punches people once and he wins. Yeah, One Punch Man is an ongoing Japanese superhero webcomic. Oh, interesting. And he looks kind of like a. It's just the cover that I see is just kind of like a Goku <laughs> punching somebody. Yeah. Everybody in every anime manga looks like a Goku to me. <laughs> That's that's functionally not true. You've seen Peak. Ash Ketchum does not look like a Goku. He looks like a young, beheaded Goku. Okay, sure. Um, on this here podcast, we talk about Goku, and then we talk about books um, that we should have read by now most of the time. And this is one that I think counts, Middle March by George Eliot, that Andrew read. Yeah, that I did read. It was a recommendation <laughs> from one of our Patreon supporters, Emma. Thank you, Emma. Find out more about that at patreon.com. Emma said it has a lot to say about disappointed ambition and passion, even when those ambitions and passions are for small things or in small spheres. I also find it to be quite funny in places without stooping to meanness in order to accomplish its humor. That remains to be seen, Andrew. We haven't talked about the book yet, so we'll set the record straight. <laughs> I, I buy all that. Okay. I buy all that stuff. I'm... I'm gonna. I want you to police me because I don't want to get into. Because every time I feel like we read a long Send book for the show, we're like, you know, reading a long book on a deadline is not. No, not that kind of police. Boom, 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 a boom, boom, boom. I know that baseline cold. Uh huh. No, okay. I'm gonna try not to give you the like kind of sting operation that you're running over there. Snap. Um. Yeah, every time we read a long book, it's like, yeah, reading a long book on a deadline is not the most fun thing in a world. And I'm going to just say that now, and then I'm going to try and separate it out from my opinion from the rest of the book. Which I think I'd, if I hadn't had a dead, it's a weird paradox, because if I hadn't had a deadline, I probably wouldn't have read or finished it ever. Sure. But reading it on a tightish kind of deadline... Because having like five weeks of runway is a tight deadline when you're reading Middle March. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I did have to like digest it faster than I wanted to. I finished mm. it like two hours mm. ago, which is hardly as hot as I've been coming into but you didn't, two episodes. But you didn't but... read all of it today. So like no, no, you've no, had no, time no. to I've, marinate in it. Yeah, I read like the first half of it in those last four weeks and then like 10% or so a day for the last four or five days all right well so not too bad every breath you take every move you make i'll be watching you let's talk about george Eliot. please do tell me about this surely this this great man george Eliot. heck no because george is a man's name it is most of the time i think <gasps> i don't know well in this case marianne evans or marion evans is sometimes how it was spelled um was a woman in the 19th century in england uh, born in 1819 and died in 1880. 
Um, and she wrote seven novels under the name George Eliot, Adam Bede, Mill on the Floss, Silas Marner, which I've heard of, Romola, uh-huh. Felix Holt the Radical, uh, which is my new character for D&D. <laughs> which is my favorite Super Nintendo game. <laughs> um, Middlemarch and Daniel Deronda. Um, she also wrote poetry and did translations. Uh, a lot of that she did under her own name, and she wrote like essays and criticism. Um, the whole pen name thing is like her wanting to avoid the stereotype of women's writing. We'll get to that in a second. Sure. Um, she also wanted to separate her fiction work from her existing career as an editor and critic and kind of shield her personal life from scrutiny as she set out on this on this thing. Because she had, did she have like an open marriage? Like I, I feel like she had a fairly unconventional sort of social she, life or marital arrangement. She for the had day. an arrangement with a philosopher critic, George Henry Lewis. It's it's that's the that's the only kind of agreement you can have with a, <laughs> like a critic philosopher. I believe it's an arrangement. He was already married and was in an open marriage, and then they got together, went on some sort of honeymoon. After which they just declared themselves married, but they weren't. I don't know if and when his actual wife like may have passed. I'm not sure. But like they were pretty open about it, which was not great for everyone. Um, it actually like it, again, it's why she took the pen name George Eliot. It's one of the reasons anyway. Um, when people found out that she was George Eliot, because her books were really popular. And even after Adam Bede, um, her first novel, there were like people clamoring to take credit for it um, because she had not come forward as, as who she was. Oh, man. I know, right? Um, but eventually, like she was so popular, people wanted to know that the uh, the like seal of approval on her like open marriage, fake marriage thing was when she got introduced like and got to meet Princess Louise because her and the Queen were like big fans. <laughs> like, well, if the Queen is cool with it, I guess we're just going to let these people... I guess everyone else has to be cool with um, it. It sure. does suck, though, that after um, Louis died in 17, 1876, she did remarry to a younger guy who... Uh, had bouts of depression and like almost took or like tried to take his life on their honeymoon uh, and then did not succeed. Then she got super sick and passed away a couple years later and she was not buried in Westminster um, in what is called Poets Corner where a lot of writers have been buried because mm-hmm. uh, because of her affairs and because she um, had like grown to deny the Christian faith, um, which is a big part of her some of her writing. Um, she did get a memorial stone there later because like on her centenary because England was like, no, her, we like her book too much. We should probably make sure. (laughs) Um, But she started out, um, she was educated uh, like pretty young. Her father apparently thought that she didn't have good marriage prospects as early as like five or six, which is Mm -hmm. weird. Um, But he knew that she was super smart. So he sent her to school and got her all read. And then after her mom died, I think she moved back with her dad he was running an estate, and so she spent a lot of time in the library, and then they moved into, like, a city, and she got to meet some, like, literary folks like Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson and just kind of immerse herself in in literary fashion and also mm-hmm. straying from Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then she moved to London in the, in the 1850s and became an editor of a paper, was, like, writing essays on the 1848 revolutions and sympathizing with the you know the union in the american civil war and stuff like that uh and then then she embarked on her novel career which started i guess actually with an essay she wrote called silly novels by lady novelists in 1856 <laughs> is there any other kind um, <laughs> You can like go find like the British Library's website has a good like scan of it and stuff. Um, she basically knocks what she calls mind and millinery millinery novels, where okay. there's like a beautiful woman who's super smart and then gets married to a man she loves. The end. Um, she thinks yeah, that's not what Middlemarch is. No, and she thinks they're very unrealistic and cliched. Um, 
there's a, the, at one point she refers to this recipe for a, a book. Take a woman's head, stuff it with a smattering of philosophy and literature chopped small, and with false notions of society baked hard, let it hang over a desk a few hours every day and serve up hot in feeble English when not required. <laughs> Uh, tell us what you really tell us what you really feel she she thought they were dangerous because they undermined like the concept of educating women like these characters would be very well educated but all they would do with it is be very self-satisfied and then just pursue a traditional marriage Um, so from her perspective it was like ipso facto a reader could be like well why would we ever do that if this is all that's going to happen because this is all they're going to do with it yeah there's a there are a couple of of references to to women with education in this book and they're like not always flattering i don't know it's it's a complicated book yes she seems to have complicated opinions about it she did praise among others like charlotte bronte as people that were actually like accomplishing interesting books Mm -hmm. um and then this book so that we can get to it it was published in 1872 andrew i don't know how it's rendered in like the full text but it was published as eight separate volumes like every other month for like a year uh-huh. does it feel that like is it like broken it def- up that it way definitely feels that way and yeah the edition that i read is broken up into eight books okay um so yeah they're all um i'm sure you'd still have a few other things yeah, to, to share but um yeah they're all sort of interlocking sometimes you get to a new book and it's like okay this is pretty much just continuing what i was reading before and sometimes you get to a new book and it's like you know this character but now we're going to focus on them and talk all about their stuff sure 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 (laughs) this is especially evident in this character mr bullstrode who is a who is who sounds like a cartoon bullfrog but no uh, yep. he's a he's a, he's a uh, well-known and in some corners respected and in some corners resented a uh, member of this community of middlemarch who is like a, a banker and a reverend and he, I think he has some political power too um who is like kind of in the beginning of the book as this like introduced as this power center because this this new doctor is in town and he's kind of getting acquainted with local politics and stuff. Um, but yeah, we don't really get a lot from him until the last couple books where all of a sudden all of the action is driven by some like a mystery from his past that is never fully yeah. expanded that's, upon. So. But that's like life, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Tell me about it. Um, I think one of the reasons it might feel that way, she did like she had started writing two different stories, one that was called Middlemarch and one that was called Miss Brooke. And both just kind of she just decided to mush them together. And it was yeah, getting as I, as I understand it, the Middlemarch book focuses on the doctor character uh, Lydgate. And then the uh, the other one focuses on Dorothea, who is a who is uh not a, she is she's being raised by her uncle and she marries an older guy for for reasons that turn out not to be great and then she has a bunch of misadventures from there okay um but it was getting really long and so uh actually lewis the guy that she had that relationship with um like acting kind of as her agent negotiated a deal that was similar to what hugo got for les mis where like episodes came out every other month um i guess they were like rammed out the last three in in you know november or october november december or whatever it was um mm-hmm. but that allowed her to not like have to cut the book to get it published um and it is actually considered sort of a historical novel even though so it was written it was published in 72 and we'll talk i guess a little bit about why it the 1832 reform act is very important. Um, but it's, I'll say, I'll say up front, like I wanted you to look it up because they mention it a lot, but it is not like, I don't even think it's actually enacted in the, in the, in the text. text. It's sort of a, a distant political concern because as in many, I think like rural or suburban communities, like those people in the government off in London yep. getting it all up in our business are, are viewed with some skepticism. Sure. So the subtitle of the book is um, A Study of Provincial Life, which I think is meant to have dual meaning. 
Um, but that first one is important in terms of like people living in the countryside or living outside London or, or city centers. And what that 1832 act did was like it changed who was enfranchised. It was essentially kind of like redrawing districts for parliament. Like if you want sure, to think about yeah. the American House of Representatives um, and it, it got. So, Andrew, I'm just going to read something real quick. Please read me something real quick. This is from Wikipedia. Many of these early boroughs, and these were boroughs where you know people would vote for their MPs from, were substantial settlements at the time of the original enfranchisement, but later went into decline. And by early 19th century, some only had a few electors, but still elected two MPs. <laughs> huh. Weird. Weird. I've never heard of such a thing. Weird that when... when power is assigned geographically and then population density changes that power becomes lopsided weird, <laughs> weird. Um, and so this book focuses on that time frame but it was written not long after the 1867 reform bill which further attempted to expand the british electorate and did some more redrawing of things apparently like pro-democracy folks were emboldened by the union victory in the civil war mm-hmm. um so all that to say, it's like it's not one to one on the issue, but in terms of the time frame as a historical novel, I imagine it's sim- it's like folks it, during the war on terror writing about like Vietnam to look at like why war happens and what it does to people. Like it's a forty year ish gap, which is a little. It's not um, most things that you would call a historical novel are actually like a bit wider than that, but it, it seems mm-hmm. to be very interested in the time period. Um, I think that's all I got, Andrew. Let's. I want to know what happens in the book, though. I bet you do. I bet. I just bet you do. I bet you can tell me some of it. Let's say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Middlemarch is eight hundred pages long, and it is split up into eight books. Like I said, um, the bulk of it, like the vast majority of it, is caught up in these characters. Uh, L- Lydgate, this new doctor who has fancy ideas about like hygiene as it relates to medicine oh dear (laughs) which is always enough to get you burned at the stake for witchcraft and back in the day (laughs) when you come into town with all these old doctors and are like we should wash our hands like we should wash all this dirt and grime and mutton and stuff off our hands so we don't give people germs you ever heard of germs there are what what's on me you witch (laughs) um and then Dorothea is this is, is the other person. She is a young woman of marriageable age who is taken with this. Like she she is very opinionated and also like hungry for knowledge. Like she really wants to she wants she wants to marry somebody who she can like help in some great work, whether that's like a scholarly work or a work of charity or something. Like there there are people who come a calling on her and because they aren't like sufficiently interested, like her, her, one of her early passions is like renovating these buildings around the, the community Hmm. um, that are, that belong to, I think tenant farmers and like making life better for the people who live in there. And so sometimes people aren't, don't want to do that. And, (laughs) but, and they're interested in, in her, but she's not interested in them. And sometimes people are interested in doing that and they mistake her interest in that as romantic interest in them. Oh no. (laughs) But she ends up falling for this guy who she perceives to be very deep. Um, This guy, Edward Casalbon, who is 45 years old, just ancient five and 40 (laughs) years old. So old (laughs) who is always doing all these great scholarly pursuits. And she's, she wants to marry him because she wants to help him with that. She wants to go to him and and become like part of his endeavors. Okay. Um. So she does that despite the fact that everyone is like, Re- him? Is it because he's <laughs> really? so old or is it because he's like boring or a jerk? It's a little of... Everything. It's a little because he's old. It's a little because he's boring. I okay. think he's too boring to like properly be a jerk, though he does end up being a little bit of a jerk, mostly through being old and boring. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the other, the other plot thread is the Bulstrode stuff. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. 
I said I think Bulstrode's main. I think I might have said he's a reverend before. I don't know if that's. I think I, Casabon. I think Casabon is the reverend. Um, Bulstrode is just a banker and a man about town who has a lot of money to throw around. These, and, but he has a shady past. These names are extra British. Can I they're just so say <laughs> like, there are extra letters and syllables in them than I am prepared for. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's like a if it's a regional thing that I just have I don't have enough exposure to like I don't know if like some of these families maybe if it's like Welsh ancestry or something I don't know but there's I'm, I know that's not Jewish because they don't like Jewish people oh really in this, in this community oh, sometimes no it's not like a it doesn't get brought up all the time but when somebody does say the word Jew it's always it's always bad. <sighs> Is it just because anyway. there's is it is oh, I don't even want to presume I don't I don't know if I want to get into like why it is racist I think it just is it's like that general purpose background Jewish people run the earth oh yes and they have all the money racism like class you know classic stuff that that old chestnut okay so classic stuff that we've definitely gotten away from today thankfully definitely. thank goodness all thank these problems are in the past where they belong. Um, That's the joy of reading these old books. You just get to see all the problems contained nicely in a book where they can't hurt anyone. And then the other, <laughs> like a, they're in a fish tank yep. at a museum, and that's how you go see the sharks. I love seeing you know fish tanks you. at museums. I love my museum fish tank. What's the animal museum called? An aquarium? <laughs> a zoo? <laughs> Aquarium's for water animals. Yeah. Zoo's for land animals this, this is, is my welcome to my <laughs> animal museum where we hunt the most dangerous game um and then the other minor major plot point is this um this guy named fred vinci who is kind of a a scallywag um a rapscallion okay who who is pretty fast and loose with his money and um he is courting this woman mary garth whose dad, Caleb, um, lent Fred some money. And Fred, because of some mishaps involving a horse that he was going to resell, does not have the money. Sure. And so he gets into a lot of trouble. Like, like um, Mrs. Vinci has to forego all her like savings and the fund for like Mary's education. And Caleb... Is like Mary. You know what? I think that Fred Vinci is not the best of fellas. <laughs> um, but yeah, so an example of how these plot points intersect is like Fred gets sick after this money thing happens. Okay, and then Lydgate comes and treats him, and then goes ahead and gets married to uh, to Fred's sister. I think Rosamund. Uh huh. And it's just, and that's how uh, that's that's how all of the folks in this book kind of interconnect. It's just a bunch of little stories where they each touch on each other in a bunch of individual places. But I will say, you know, across all these pages, I did sometimes have a hard time remembering who I was supposed to remember. You know? Oh yeah, because like, am I supposed to carry this person forward? Am I supposed to just like know that they serve a purpose in this scene and then move on? Or if I'm just, I'm just supposed to remember the difference between a bunch of boys named like Fred and Will. <laughs> it's, it's not always easy to. Is Fred the one? Like the the um, one of the guys in the Dorothea thread is named Will Ladislaw, and for the first like two thirds of the book, I think every time I came to Ladislaw or Lydgate after a oh, story no. that didn't touch on either of them, I would be like, wait, 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 which one of them is this one? <laughs> it would become clear from context eventually. But, <laughs> but like, so, so um, Dorothy is married this, this guy, Casabon, and they go to Rome for their honeymoon. And it becomes clear that Casabon does not want Dorothea to be involved in his studies. He just wants to go off and do his studies. And he doesn't fully understand why this bright, pretty young woman has married him. Huh. And he's not really interested in finding out. <laughs> but at the same time, um, Will, who is, uh, I think, Casabon's cousin, is also in Rome hanging out. And he and Dorothea meet and they kind of hit it off. 
And once they return to Middlemarch, they stay on friendly terms. And Kazoban is like, really, he doesn't like this because he feels like Will's trying to get with his wife. Oh, gosh. And so when Kazoban dies of a heart attack, which Lydgate cannot prevent, here you, here you go, all these interconnecting stories. Well, I thought again. you were a doctor. Come on. I thought you knew about hand washing. He basically comes in and says, you know, you could live for 15 more years if you don't excite yourself too much, or you could just like keel over. Hard stuff is hard. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he, Kazoban dies and he puts in his will that if Dorothea ever gets married to Will, oh she forfeits God. all of his estates Uh-oh. that she's just inherited. No. As a result of being a widow, which creates in the gossip happy community of Middlemarch an impression that they were actually seeing each other, even oh, though they weren't no. technically really. You know, I guess a man and a woman staying in the same room for long enough is kind of seen as courtship in this in this age. In this time, yeah, I, think, I, guess. I mean, if you think about it, really. If, if you go back to when we were doing our very first like Bronte or Jane Austen episodes. Yes. Where I was like, man, this is everyone's talking about getting married all the time in this book, huh? <laughs> I think that's mainly what I would come away with is wow, everybody's really concerned with marriage and getting married off and keeping other people from getting married and Yeah, but this one sounds like more like the bummer side of what must have been going on for folks in the nineteenth century. Like the ways in yeah. which it's limiting, the ways in which you got into it for one reason, but the other person doesn't share your reason. Well, it does. It feels like when folks get married, like this happens to Lydgate and Rosamund as well, is Lydgate, whose first name is Tertius. Stop. <laughs> by the way. No. That's uh, not a name, though. Tertius Lydgate. And he's he a main like a, character? He's he not a sounds, secondary character? No, he's a main character, Tertius Lydgate. Should have been Primaris like, Lydgate. He sounds like he has his own series of Nintendo DS games where you go around and solve puzzles. Solve medical puzzles. <laughs> Tertius Lydgate in the Middlemarch Chronicles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Reggie, call me. We'll make this game happen. Doug Bowser, get at me. Oh, man. Um Man, I don't know. So what do you want to well, what else do you, you want to know? I, like you just touched on one thing that I, I want to get into a little bit. So you talked about the community. Yeah, cuz I could just keep jumping from like yeah, episode yeah, to yeah. episode forever. But you know the general shape of the thing, I think at sure. this point. Like these are the most important relationships so, set up. We can talk more about Bullstrode in a bit because it <laughs> pops up. I do want to know about that. Um okay. what I before we even dive it a little bit more into Dorothea cuz I want to know what her deal is is like how present is the is the community of Middlemarch or the place of Middlemarch? Like, how much of this feels like her, uh, Elliot, um, like, writing about a specific place and trying to, like, dive into it? I don't want to say the, the, the community is a character because that feels like a sort of cliched way to get at it, but it does feel like she is writing a very pointed critique of a certain kind of community sure sure um let me read this is actually toward the end of the book but i think it sums things up pretty well um in middlemarch a wife could not long remain ignorant that the town held a bad opinion of her husband no feminine intimate might carry her friendship so far as to make a plain statement to the wife of the unpleasant fact known or believed about her husband, but when a woman with her thoughts much at leisure got them suddenly employed on something grievously disadvantageous to her neighbors, various moral impulses were called into play, which tended to stimulate utterance. Candor was one. To be candid in Middlemarch phraseology meant to use an early opportunity of letting your friends know that you did not take a cheerful view of their capacity, their conduct, or their position, And a robust candor never waited to be asked for its opinion. <laughs> oh, my God. Then again, there was the love of truth, a wide phrase, but meaning in this relation, a lively objection to seeing a wife look happier than her husband's character warranted or manifest too much satisfaction in her lot. The poor thing should have some hint given her that if she knew the truth, she would have less complacency in her bonnet and in light dishes for a supper party. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, this this feels like... 
it's everybody gossiping all everybody the time. gossiping all the time and everybody gotta take everybody down a peg yes it just i don't i i am not familiar with the austin canon at all so i don't know how austin renders it my impression is that it's more about individual people in those societies whereas this feels like a bridge towards something we've talked about um like with like peyton place and like some of the like early early to mid 20th century stuff where it's like ooh, here's a small community where everybody knows each other all up in each other's business and yeah and i think if, if you've this is maybe a deep pool for for some folks but if you've um watched the tv show cranford i think it is doing a lot of the same stuff oh, with yeah. respect to community and also with worry about technology like trains coming in and just changing things. Well, yeah, because it's what it's and like bringing in yeah. bringing in more of that big city influence into your little closed community. I can't even imagine. I was what was I? I was listening to some podcast where they were talking about people being afraid that trains would move you too fast, like physically move your body too fast. I mean, if you if you lived in a world where horses were the fastest thing that there was, yeah, that's weird. And yeah, you would be like planes. I bet all kinds of people were like, I don't know, man wasn't meant to fly. Like, what are you? Well, what, yeah. Why are you making me fly in this metal death tube? <laughs> I bet it was the same for trains. I bet it was the same for trains. And I just like n- the idea that the outside world could come into your little community that much easier is probably scary to people because it's like. Well, then I have to know about all that other stuff, and I'm too busy learning about Looperdong and Tertiary Man, like whatever their names are. I got to learn all their stuff. I can't learn about London. I'm too busy. I think you, I don't know how connected this is, but you do see some of the same, I don't know, just, just worries about connecting disparate kinds of communities via trains oh, employed sure. in rhetoric against like public transit projects Ooh. and stuff. I don't know. This is maybe us bringing our our politics into the well, that's, book podcast. Well, that's <laughs> what some of the Reform Act stuff was. It was about like creating boroughs in areas like in cities, small cities that were growing because of industrialization and like uh-huh. enfranchising working class folks who were living in those areas as opposed to having what they called rotten boroughs which were like one wealthy dude just tells everybody who to vote for because it's his land (laughs) (laughs) and so now they have to contend with the fact that other people want to vote they you know still not women though because you know come on yeah let's not let's not get crazy let's not get crazy that's not good, um, tell me more about Dorothea and like what her life is post Casabon. Is there much of the book after that for her? I can't tell where that. Yeah, happened I mean that, that happens fairly early okay. though. After after that happens, we do bounce to other characters okay. for a while. Okay. Like we get a lot of the Lydgate stuff and some of the Bulstrode stuff. What other what other Lydgate stuff is there? Is that the Rosamond? Is that Rosamond? Rosamond, yeah. Um, so. So they've gotten married. They because when uh, Lydgate is treating Fred Vinci's illness, they start kind of flirting it up. And as happens so often, I guess they just had one meaningful look too many, and that <laughs> meant they were engaged to be married now. But Lydgate is not. Um, but so he has a couple good turns of luck. Like he he treats Fred successfully. Um, he treats, you know, he, he doesn't, I mean, Casabon dies, but yeah. there wasn't a lot to be done about it. Like he, he, Lydgate was referred to the Casabons by the Vinci's, I believe. Um, but the doctors who are already in Middlemarch are kind of sus- suspicious of his methods. He has a very high opinion of himself and of his abilities and, and so kind of keeps himself removed from the rest of the community. Like he wants to do good for it but he also doesn't really see himself as a part of it Mm. um so after he gets married to rosamund he is living beyond his means and some of the things that the people in this book talk about with respect to money is kind of wild like lydgate has mostly to keep up appearances to hear him tell it like very good you know furniture and silverware and dishes and three servants and two horses. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and he and Rosamund are cut, talking about cutting back, and he's like, well, surely we can get by with just one servant. Surely. Imagine having to get by with just one servant. I can't imagine it. That would suck. I When, I'm, when I pick my house that I rent right now, I had to pick between HVAC and a dishwasher. Like... <laughs> Doctor Doctor Tertius over here is choosing whether or not to have two servants, three servants. Oh God, or one. Whatever. It's a big drop off in servants, Craig. It's sixty six percent reduction in servants. <laughs> okay. So he's living beyond his means. He's he's living beyond his means. He gets into quite a bit of debt, and this introduces strain into his marriage with Rosamond. And I can't, honest to goodness, cannot tell. Whether Elliot wants me to think that Lydgate is the jerk or Rosamond is the oh, jerk. Uh, because they both kind of seem like the jerk. So Lydgate <laughs> gets them into all this debt and doesn't tell her about it for a while. And then she goes behind his back to like he's trying to move them into a cheaper house. And she goes behind his back to make sure that it's not available. He wants to um, he doesn't want to ask his family for money because they're like estranged. And she thinks that she knows better and so like writes to her dad or, or his dad or his uncle or something and they get a very nasty letter back in response because he was right about his family the entire oh time God. and he gets really mad at her for going behind his back and keeping secrets from him but it's like my dude you're happy enough to keep secrets when you ran up a thousand pounds of debt without asking anybody <laughs> So their whole situation becomes strained. Is this, uh, is any of this money stuff like run through a lens of like being unable to know other people or like the difficulties of knowing what's going on in other people's private lives? Because that's a thing I saw crop up in a couple articles about the book. I mean, when it becomes clear that the Lydgates have people over at their house like taking their stuff. And like tending to this obvious debt, yeah, that is detrimental to their social <laughs> lives. Um, I mean, more on, on like a personal level between the two of them, or any of the other relationships that are like, this is like I keep the way the ways in which like yes, I could keep a secret, but also like all of my thoughts are actually secrets from another person unless I tell them. That kind of like wait, I I didn't mean to just get high for a second. I'm um, not really. <laughs> I guess what I'm wondering is like how much of the of their relationship or maybe Dorothea is like um, about like their own personal wants and needs and like being unable to express it to another person because that's a to me that feels like a trope of the time period too and I don't know if Elliot is concerned with that or not I mean I guess there's some of that i don't really know how much they sit around and angstify over good word like they 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 do in in each of these cases people have gotten married quickly mm. and then realize that for one reason or another this is not what they really wanted okay okay and me in 2019 <laughs> who lived with my now wife for like six years five years like some number of years before we even got married but yeah me in 2019 i'm like yeah of course you barely know each other you like stood in the same room and shared glances for you know like four times and now you're married like of course you're gonna discover that you're not fundamentally compatible after that i've read an article about how millennials are killing cheating now <laughs> and i think part of it are we what yeah we're it's killing just we're not getting divorced as much we're or not what? getting divorced because well, we're not getting married either we're killing that well too. we're getting married later and later because we're hanging out with our partners for longer before we get married and so uh you've prop more likely vetted someone you've also invested in them for more time so you're less likely to then like skip out later also we're not the generate we're not the free love like boomer generation now are we killing sex too like yeah that's that's of part of it so like there's less uh you're not just like stepping out to go get some because you're not having sex in the first place because you have instagram that's really what's the problem <laughs> what? that's the real problem 
But we are killing cheating, apparently. We're killing a lot what of is, things. What was your question? My question was <laughs> about um, the ways in which these people are able to like relate to each other. And you got to it. You got a sense of like they sign up for these marriages because they have... Because well, they, they have one idea yeah. of, of what's going to happen. Or they have like their own ambitions like personal so with, with Dorothy like Dorothea she yeah with Dorothea she has she like she doesn't even care about money she wants to do good for people and she wants to like learn things Lydgate wants to I don't know forward the cause of medicine while also probably just getting some accolades for himself for doing so <laughs> but you know, Rosamond is not very supportive in that. And then they get into all of this debt. And so he doesn't even feel like himself because he can't pursue this stuff anymore. Like it, it, it's. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's reminding me of, um, you know, weird way of Hedda Gabler and just that like late 19th century. Like, how can a woman can like what are the ways in which women can contribute to society through what channels are, are available to them? And in this, it's 1830, so it's even sooner, it's even earlier than that. But, like, for her to have to marry a dude so that she can, like, work to better the world kind of sucks. But, like, it's that's different from I'm going to marry a dude so that, like, my family has explicit financial security. And that's well, it. It's not, even, it's not even especially that she has to marry him to do this stuff because she already is doing some working of it to you know like renovate those the the houses that the farmers live in or whatever like she she's doing some of it with pals but she views her you know her her desires and and Casabon's desires as like mutually compatible like okay. they're on the same okay. page and then they are emphatically not ah i after see that okay um so um let me Get to you. Let me let me throw a couple more like spider webs up, up on the wall, and then we can talk about Bullstrode for a bit. Okay. Um, so Rosamund had a sort of when things are bad between Rosamund and Lydgate, the person whose Facebook, the, the ex whose Facebook page she goes on <laughs> to think about what might have been is one Will Ladislaw, Uh-oh. who if you remember which I had some trouble with for a while, <laughs> as you'll recall. If you'll remember, is the cousin of Casabon who Dorothea has also hit it off Okay, with. when this um, is happening, what the, just because I know the book, some of it is happening like parallel to other parts. The section you're describing, Casabon is still alive or not? And does that matter? Casabon is, I mean, they, they were friendly from a long time ago, like from before Casabon died, but Casabon dies like... I don't know. I want to say like a third away in okay. roundabouts. So most of the action in the book is post Casabon. But yeah, because Dorothea is in mourning for a while and then we shift focus to Lydgate and some others for a while. I think most of the most of the Dorothea stuff is is concentrated at the beginning and at okay. the end. Okay. At least that's my that's my recollection sure. of how the book is structured. Anyway, so Rosamond um, is uh, trolling through Facebook with the new Secret Crush app that Zuck rolled out. Oh my god! And <laughs> she has pulled up uh, Ladislaw's page and is like posting all sorts of funny memes. Mm-hmm. And Ladislaw continues, even though they he's gotten through the rumor mill at long last that this thing about marrying him specifically is in the will. <laughs> And so he is kind of quit Middlemarch for a while, but he is still <laughs> kind of pining after Dorothea, and Dorothea is still pining after him. Um, I'm just thinking about like, well, everyone in town knows that I'm not allowed to marry someone that I like. <laughs> I guess I'm just going to leave. That seems right. That seems reasonable. I'm on Team Ladislaw, I suppose. <laughs> There's also this thing with Ladislaw and there's there's this whole other family named the Fair Brothers who there's this there's this little bit of stuff about him where like a patriarch of that family dies and then his his estate gets divided up in a way that is that like I think that Fred or Will see this is where my confusion of them is <laughs> is becoming a problem um but uh yeah, I think Fred Vinci is supposed to get 
some uh, s- some big payout from this estate, but then that doesn't happen, and that also gets his dander up, and that's part of why he also leaves Middlemarch. Okay. Like it just feels like he can't catch a break. Sure. Um. So Bullstrode. Wait, 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 wait. Guy. Ladislaw, Ladislaw, and Rosamond. Did we do that? That's. I mean, that's pretty much all there is. Oh. Like they they have an established sort of. Not relationship, but like a history together and that, that you need to know about as we talk about the Bullstrode. Oh, sorry. I didn't know that it was set up for Bullstrode. Okay, no, cool. Because Bullstrode is the, is the the third act Seinfeld thing where all the plot lines <laughs> come in and intersect again. Yeah. Okay. And then Bullstrode pulls the golf ball from the blowhole <laughs> of the whale and the book is over. Man, Middle March was angry that day, my friends. <laughs> Bullstrode is... Going about his business, and in town, into town comes this guy named Raffles. John Stop, Raffles. His name's John Raffles, and I never. My initial, my brain. You know how your brain draws an image. Yep. And if you haven't seen like the movie or TV version of the thing, then there's nothing to compete with the image that your brain draws. Yep. So I hear Raffles, and I, of course, am imagining a clown, like a full circus clown. Raffles the clown comes to the... He's not a clown. I can't emphasize enough that this is just a thing that my brain has done with his name. Okay. Is that when all this stuff happens, imagine it happening to a clown. (laughs) Great. Can't wait. John Raffles is a man from Bullstrode's past. Yes. Who knows dark secrets about his past okay that we aren't really privy to <laughs> um and raffles comes into town and he's like hey nick because bullstro's name is nicholas hey nick i'm coming into town and you can give me 200 pounds and i'll leave but he's coming in and he's blackmailing this guy okay and bullstrode is like sure i guess i really don't want to see you again um and raffles goes but then he comes back and he's in kind of poor health and he's still trying to blackmail Bullstrode, but he's not doing very well. In comes Lydgate, trying to get money from pretty much anywhere to like cancel his debts and save his marriage. And he has come to Bullstrode before. Bullstrode has told him, nah, I'm not interested in this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he comes to Bullstrode again because Bullstrode's asked him to come look at Raffles, who's sick. <laughs> and Bullstrode all of a sudden is like, hey, I want to get, I have changed my mind and I want to give you these thousand pounds after all. And in the, the book is a very close third person. And so you are, it's, it's never clear like whether you are getting what is actually in the character's head. So I think usually you are. I think it's that like, it's that free and direct discourse thing. It's yeah, that Austin-y think, thing. Yeah. I think that Bullstrode does have, just, just like things have happened in his life to make him think a little bit differently. And so he softens. And he's like, yeah, okay, I am going to give this guy the money that he asked for. But at the same time, and this is where the like gossipy community of Middlemarch comes in to things. Like at the same time, he just happens to have Lydgate come in and take a look at Raffles. And Lydgate is like, oh, this guy will probably be fine. Here's some like, here's some opium or whatever and do follow my directions and he should be okay. And Raffles dies. Uh-oh. And then and you have a dead clown in your house. Lydgate, and he has a dead, you have a dead clown in your house. And Lydgate suspects his directions weren't followed, but doesn't want to rat on somebody. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want to drag someone's name through the mud, like without evidence. But all the town knows is this guy who Bullstrode knew came in and died at the same time as Lydgate's debts mysteriously went away. Lydgate has treated this guy, this did beautiful the, bad clown did the who town, has happened to die at the same did time. Did the town know that the clown had something on Bullstrode? So there's this guy whose name I don't recall because he's really only a plot device to make this one thing happen. But he does, right before Raffles dies, it is implied that Raffles has revealed something to this guy. And this guy comes to Bullstrode and says, hey, we can't really do business anymore. Oh. And because everybody's so unfailingly, passive aggressively polite, <laughs> like we don't find out what the thing is. Oh, no. 
but all of the, I don't know, everybody just thinks that, of course, it's related to this guy Raffles, and it must be, you know, it must must be something something untoward happened. Past. Yes. So yeah, this is where we get back to the the gossipy nature of, of Middlemarch, and we we have gotten to a point where it doesn't it doesn't matter whether this happened or not, because everybody thinks it happened, and everybody's sort of propriety prevents everyone from talking about it in a, in in an open way that would either confirm or deny that the stuff happened. Okay, and so because. All of these rumors are going around. Both Bullstrode's and and um, Lydgate's reputations and fortunes are basically in ruins mm. at this point. Good, good. Um, so here's where Dorothea comes back in. Um, she and Lydgate were pals. Like they, they. It's it's pretty clear that they weren't like romantically interested in each other, but. Um, like Ladislaw and, and Lydgate were friendly for a while and Dorothea and Ladislaw, of course, were friendly for a bit. And so they all kind of know each other in there. And, and Dorothea is known as a, you know, a, a kind and charitable individual. So Lydgate has not been able to, you know, he has his, his side of this thing, but he hasn't told it to anybody. But Dorothea comes in and says, you know, I've I've heard that there are things going around and I just, I don't believe it of you. Please tell me what's going on. And she is the first person who like, even Rosamund does not say to him when she hears this stuff, like, Oh, I, I don't believe that you could possibly do this. Like Dor- Dorothy, this Dorothy is the first person who seems like she might come to his defense or because he just doesn't have that many friends in town. Yeah. Sure. He doesn't have, he doesn't have anybody to speak against the rumors. And when the the court of public opinion is literally the court that Uh-oh. is trying you, Uh-oh. it's, it, yeah, all your allies sort of matter. Um, nobody's really eager to defend Bolstrode because people were kind of on the fence about him anyway. Like he has a lot of money and he has some political power. So people sort of tolerated him. But I think when it becomes clear that somebody like that is weak, their allies sort of desert them pretty quickly. Um, So Dorothea talks to Lydgate and, you know, he, he tells her everything. Um, There's also a bit, because Dorothea has come back to town for the first time in a while following like a sort of period of mourning. Like I said, she kind of disappears for a little bit. Sure. Makes sense. In the middle of the book. Well, because she was Um, was explicitly told that she couldn't marry the dude she wanted to marry. And so she goes to talk to Rosamund and Rosamund is with Ladislaw. Uh Uh-oh. Because and they're just like holding hands in a room together. Well, they might as well Rose, be having sex. They might as well because Rosamund, and that's very much the reaction that everybody <laughs> has. Is Dorothea just like backs out of the room, um, and and everyone else is mortified. <laughs> but Will has this big scene where he, you know, even though even though he and Rosamund may have had a thing in the past, he's like, I would rather hold. I would rather hold Dorothea's dead hand than the living hand of any other woman who's alive. <laughs> um, and so d- dispelling Rosamund's notions about how, how this other relationship might have gone while also reaffirming to us as the reader that even though a lot of time, like some time has passed and some things have passed between Dorothea and uh, Ladislaw, that that, that the, yearning the is soul still, still burns alive. Yeah, the soul still burns. Uh, made a lot of video game references in this one. You don't always have to point them all out. You could just make them and move on. No, I just love our all our gamer references. There's a bit in here where <laughs> Lydgate is very Play desperate to resolve to resolve his debts, and so he's up at playing billiards in the Green Dragon. And there's this moment what? where he's doing really well, where he's entertaining, like going to the to billiards and other places and just playing high stakes billiards and, and it's like is Lydgate the first pro gamer? He might be esports. He's an esports hustler. <laughs> the e-sports. e the e stands for English. The B stands for billiards. Mm. <laughs> um 
was I talking about? Well, so the soul still burns. And so, yeah, Rosamund, so Rosamund and Lydgate, like uh, Dorothea goes to Rosamund again and is like, hey, she she has had this this very deep, like soul searching moment where she is hurt. But she's also saying, listen, at this point in my life, I can make this big difference in the lives of of at least three different people, hmm. those being Rosamund and, and Lydgate and Ladislaw. Um, so she helps Lydgate and Rosamund sort of come to terms with their thing and, and reconcile. And then from her, you know, f- from the money she has in the bank, she also gives Lydgate a thousand pounds so he can pay back his debt to Bulstrode and be sort of clear of him in that, in that way. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, Bulstrode's thing is is he's pretty much disgraced. Like he's thinking all of these people at, at some point have an opportunity to leave Middlemarch and like save their reputations, but going somewhere and having no one hate you, but also nobody knows you, is apparently worse than just like trying to stick it out <laughs> in the community of Middlemarch. <laughs> um. So yeah, so Dorothea helps start like rehabilitating Lydgate's reputation. He helps them sort of patch their marriage together more or less. And then she and Ladislaw declare their love for one another. And she says, you know, I don't care about money. All I want to do is do good. And I, I don't care if we live in poverty. I just want to, I want to be with you because you seem cool. Hmm. And so they get married and that's kind of the It's kind of the end of the book. Like there's some other things in the other plot lines that <laughs> happen, but that's the main like what happened, arc of it. Do, are the Garths okay? Yeah, so um Fred like apprentices himself to Caleb Garth, the dad Garth. The da- dad Garth. Daddy Garth. <laughs> because Daddy Garth is a sort of forgiving sort who could it is it is implied could be making a lot more money from his work, but He's just like too good a dude. Okay, sure. He's not cutthroat enough. Be good at capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. He's not Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross over here. Yeah. So he. Yeah. So he sort of rehabilitates himself in the eyes of the of the Garth family, and he and Mary Garth get married. Um, Fred Vinci does. Sure. And, and Mary Garth. Um, okay. Yeah. Bullstrode is kind of out of it. Sure. Um, and does Dorothea? Dorothea and Ladislaw's thing causes a stink. But when Dorothea has her first baby, like um, Dorothea has a sister who is who is in and out of the story and like not especially like important, but is kind of a proxy for how Dor- the rest of Dorothea's family feels about the stuff that she's doing. Put some stuff in relief. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, and, and yeah, so so um, her sister once she has had this first baby is like, I can't believe my sister almost died having this baby and I'm not going to know this baby and we have to reconcile. And so nobody ever ends up loving that she's married to Ladislaw, but the family reconciles and it ends up basically being okay. Okay. Um, and then Lydgate and Rosamund like do fine. And then he dies at the age of 50 and she gets remarried to another doctor who likes their four kids very much. Good. That seems um, reasonable. That's the, so that's the main stuff. Yeah. How did it... Dorothea's uncle gets elected to parliament, I think, and then a reform act passes yeah. at some point. This sure. is all in the epilogue of Great. the book. Great. <laughs> in the it's Sigmarillion. Like the, freeze, the, freeze, the freeze frame and everybody says where everybody is Sure, now. <laughs> sure. Um, so, like, I think we did a pretty good job of diving into, like, the characters, which, save for two or three boys, seem to have, like, stood out well to you or at least their problems have which is why i was reading a couple of the like every once in a while like british people do a poll and they're like what book do you love and they're like uh this you know and those british people in their polls they're like this jane austen and tolkien <laughs> this like i don't know <laughs> harry potter i guess um and so like we talked about how it like all the marriages happen up front which is kind of revolutionary for the time frame, or at least yeah, I guess the the books usually end with the marriage. Yeah, it's and all this about does courtship. end with marriages, but it's always with like it's all remarriages. And it's all either fixing your marriage or the do over good yeah, marriage yeah. at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we talked about like the characters and their relationships. Anything else about like 
her voice or things that struck you before we close out. One Guardian article They're referred just, to this book yeah. as a cathedral of words, which let it is okay. a cathedral of words in that there are so 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 so. Well, so there are many so of many of them. Um, um, but you were telling me that there were just like sick burns sometimes. George Ellie is queen of burns, <laughs> and then there are sometimes just little asides that let you know about who the like the narrator is there. Okay. Um, this is chapter 29 begins one morning, some weeks after her arrival at Loic, Dorothea. But why always Dorothea? Was her point of view the only possible one with regard to this marriage? And then it just talks about Casabon for a while. <laughs> so, That's pretty good. He's, this is about Casabon. Uh, he has got no good red blood in his body, said Sir James. No, someone put a drop of under a magnifying glass and it was all semicolons and parentheses, <laughs> said Mrs. Cadwallader. <laughs> That's good. That's a good um, joke made by an editor. It's like the fact that Elliot spent a lot of time writing in newspapers and stuff to like burn people with semicolons. I beg your pardon. Correct English is the slang of prigs who write history and essays, and the strongest slang of all is the slang of poets. What? Take that, poets. Take that, poets. Takes one to no one, poets. <laughs> Well, that's cool. I'm glad that you enjoyed Middlemarch, even though if it took you more than March to read it. I did enjoy it. It was kind of a forced Middlemarch for a while in there. But I did get that joke in, so, so all is forgiven. That's why we're here. Do you like anything else about why you think people sometimes regard this as their favorite book or like one of the best books, things that struck you? There's just there's a lot of good stuff in here about money and how it feels. Uh, he had always known in a general way that he was not rich, but he had never felt poor, and he had no power of imagining the part which the want of money plays in determining the actions of men. Money had never been a motive to him. I think that stuff like that really speaks to like it's still totally applicable now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and really speaks to where inertia exists in our society. Is just like too many people are getting screwed over by the system, but they don't view themselves as getting screwed over by the system. And so they are, it is hard for them to envision the system not working out for people. Sure. Sure. If that makes sense. But yeah, it's, it's, I think a lot of its themes are still universal. I think if you are into this genre of book, it is doing a lot of, subversive things that we touched on a little bit. We're still not really experts in this genre, but I think I am, we do a better job of it than we I used to. I am struck to. by the degree to which it doesn't sound like it's just a book about Dorothea. Like usually when we've read one of these, there's like the central relationship that around which everything orbits. And this is much more, Hey, here's a place with some people in it. Let me like yeah, bop like a, around. I'll say, Early on, whenever the book was not about Dorothea, all the, like, all why the, all do I got to care about all these people? All the like, characters why are asking, where's Dorothea? Characters? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they all eventually get established enough. I think some of the some of the more minor players still were not like the the whole like Fred Vinci side plot. I think was not like particularly impactful, though. I did have a lot of fun. With Bullstrode and the mysterious Raffles the Clown. How important is Mr. Momsey the Grocer? I just he's on a character list that I'm looking at, and I can't get I over the name Mr. Momsey. Do not recall. Well, who that is. I'm gonna write my own Mr. Momsey fanfic. Please write your own self-insertion, Mr. Momsey fanfic. I'm a Momsey Sue over here. That's me. Stop it. Thanks for reading this book and telling me about it, Andrew. I read this long book and then I talked about it for a whole hour. You did a great job. Thank you. Um, if folks want to learn... Was, I tell you what, I was worried about not liking it and I was worried oh. about people being really mad at me about it, <laughs> but I'm glad I came around on it. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds like it has the appeal of like, and now even when you were getting into the like the the middle of it of just like, yeah, we're in this community and here's all these people's business, which is like both what the book is revealing as problematic and part of the appeal of most of these like community-based dramas. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, the main issue with it is just like for every six slam on poets, there are like 20 pages of just descriptions of 
people's relationships to other like minor characters or like their own mm. internal monologues. Like it's, it's not always, it does sort of just wash over you though when it really wants to grab your attention, especially once you're kind of used to its rhythms. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it can grab you pretty good. Like all the Bullstrode stuff when that starts really happening, it's like, whoa, suddenly I'm, I am switching into a, a more engaged <laughs> mode, which I'm not always in when I'm reading this book. Well, and someone know? that like ends up having a, a, a more, it has more power by contrast, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, cool. If Middlemarch is you or your favorite book, you, the listener, <laughs> you. your favorite book, you can email us at overduepod at gmail.com. Um, you can also hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at overduepod. Thanks to folks reaching out to us in the past week, including Melinda, Nicole, Magdarin, Kat, Maggie, Fritz, Jake, Andrea, Jacob, Kevin, Gloria, Leah, Michelle, and Jeff. Um, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. You can also find us on Spotify and on Stitcher, among other services. Um, get new episodes when they come out on Mondays and uh, bonus episodes when we release them. We're going to talk about our May schedule in a sec, but we have a couple of bonus episodes coming out this month that we're pretty excited about. Um, you can also go to Patreon.com slash OverduePod to give us a little bit of money and get some of our bonus stuff a little bit early. And we'll be talking about that more later this month. Not quite yet, but um, if you've been following our stop Homer time episodes at all, we have plans for our next project and we're going to start talking about that soon. Yeah. So may Andrew just read middle March in may, um, at the beginning of may, <laughs> which is sure we missed something there. I don't know. Um, I am reading. Well, weird. I am reading. You're reading eleven twenty two sixty three by Stephen King, even though it's not November. We just really beefed it on this one. Really beefed it. Um, then Andrew is reading Cersei by Madeline Miller. Uh, and I'm reading Drowning Ruth by Christina Schwartz to round out the month. And then we have two bonus episodes for you from our Stop Homer Time series. So Patreon supporters have gotten one of these and will get uh, the second in like a day or two. Like early, early this week. Um, yeah. So the first that's going to go up on the main feed on May 17th is our chat with Emily Wilson, who did the translation for the Odyssey that we read. And it was so fun. She's so cool. So cool. Such a cool lady. Um, and at the end of the month on May 31st, we'll post on the main feed, our book 24 and closing thoughts episode, uh, that'll wrap it up. And that's where we'll tell you what we're doing next. So stay tuned for that. And then last, uh, show business thing is that you may have noticed on our social feeds, but the choose your own adventure episodes are back up. We can't really like say a lot more beyond that, but I think things are going to be able to continue as they as they were before. So that's, you know, back to normal is a good state of, of things for us. But, yeah, this would not have been possible without all you guys and your impassioned support for our dumb thing. Correct. Um, and, you know, we're just really gratified that so many of you were moved to send messages into Choose Co and, and kind of pleading our our on our behalf and if you if you want to forward us those messages overduepod at gmail.com is our inbox we will gladly read we would file them away in the folder called read these when you're having a bad day read read for happy (laughs) that's the that's what we should have called this podcast read for happy read for happy okay i'm done we're done all right (laughs) thank you everybody for listening we'll be back next week and until then try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.